every time there was an Indian person or somebody who looked Indian on screen, and even if there was someone who was Indian in the grocery store or in the library, my family would always be like, oh, hey, there's an Indian person. You know, there was some really fascinating excitement around seeing another Indian person. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, South Asian University, a segment where we bring on academics and experts to talk about historical or cultural topics that affect the diaspora. My guest this week is Madhavi Reddy. Madhavi is an interdisciplinary artist. She's the producer on two documentaries, What's Your Name and Through Fish Eyes. She's done photography exhibits, Bharatanatyam and theater performances, and has even dabbled in podcasting. She's also a PhD student at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill School of Media and Journalism, which is why I have her on today. Usually when I think of an academic, I think of someone in their ivory tower, but clearly she's done her work as a practitioner. Her research focuses on identity and representation, particularly in entertainment, media, art, and politics. During this episode, we talked about media representation of South Asians, a topic that I'm especially excited about because it led to the creation of this podcast. Shout out Hassan Bai. Also, because we'll have on actress and producer Sujatha Chowdhury, aka Sujatha Day, next week. Madhavi talked to me about the current state of media representation and how we got here, what ethical media representation looks like, and how to create more of it. And we discussed the responsibility of creators as we talked through examples like Apu from The Simpsons, you knew that was coming, and Indian matchmaking. Okay, I guess you knew that one too. <laughs> Hope you learned something new. Madhavi Reddy, welcome to Brown People We Know. Madhavi, at age four, you were dancing Bharatanatyam. More recently, you've performed in theater. You've also had a mini podcast. You've worked on several films. I believe you've had a photography exhibit. Is there any medium that you haven't worked in or one that you want to try out eventually? Hmm, that's a good question. You know, the podcasting that I've done is, has been very minimal, and that's a space that I'm really interested in moving forward in one day, much like you. That's probably where I would take my wings next. Is that pretty typical of PhD students working in media? Because I feel like the typical image that we have of a PhD is kind of the academic, the ivory tower, right? People that aren't really practitioners. Have a lot of your classmates also kind of dabbled in different media like that? Hmm, that's a good question. One thing I will say is that being in a professional school, because it is the school of journalism and media, people do tend to come in with certain skills in various mediums. And so I don't know about my classmates, but, but I know that's a big part of who I am as an academic. I consider myself a multimedia artist. So that heavily informs the research that I do and inspires the work that I do around media and media representation. That's interesting. When I picture a journalism undergrad, I'm thinking this is a person who's preparing to go out and do journalism, right? Versus a PhD I'm usually picturing someone who's going out to research and kind of survey the landscape. Do you have a preference between the two? Is there one that you're aiming towards? I think that I consider myself an interdisciplinary scholar. So I predominantly use qualitative methods. So that includes things like interviewing and textual analysis. And a lot of those things are things that people in 
journalism and media are already doing as part of their practice. So I feel like it's sort of seamless between the two. So on a high level, your work looks at how our identities are shaped by media representation with a focus on the Indian diaspora. So can you briefly summarize kind of the work that you're doing, what you're studying? Definitely. So yeah, I study identity and representation through the lens of entertainment, media, art, and politics with, of course, a focus on the South Asian diaspora. Specifically, my academic work demonstrates the need for scholars to think critically about the ways in which power dynamics of race, ethnicity, gender, nation, and in more specific contexts, let's say within the South Asian diaspora, things like caste, class, what are the ways that those shape identity construction in the media? So what are the ways in which those elements inform the way we construct characters or we construct stories in the media? Is there a specific problem statement that you're looking at currently? Or what is the end goal of the research that you're doing? That's a really good question. Um, one of the things I think is an end goal, and I'm working towards this partially in my dissertation work, is what does good representation entail? I mean, I think anyone who has never seen themselves or has seen themselves stereotyped can relate to that hunger for good representation, but that is something that's hard to concretize. Uh, what is useful, of course, is going back and tracing the history of Indian American media representation. So someone whose work that I often cite and I often look into is Dr. Shilpa Deve from UVA. And her book, Indian Accents, Brown Voice and Racial Performance in American Television and Film, includes a great historical account. She talks about early representations such as Peter Sellers, who plays Harundi Bakshi in this 1968 film called The Party, where he puts on brown makeup, brown face, and he, he puts on an Indian accent. And then Sellers' performance, in fact, was what, quote, inspired Hank Azaria, the voice of Apu in The Simpsons. Of course, recently Azaria retired the voice of Apu, and he talks a lot about the resistance from the Indian American community and, and for example, Hari Kondabolu's film, The Problem with Apu. But, but up, up until the past decade, this is what we were working with. I, I'd say in the past few years, since 2015 or so, there's been this proliferation of Indian American content created by Indian American content creators, unlike Apu, for instance, like I just talked about. So we have Aziz Ansari's Master of None, we have Hassan Minhaj's work, Mindy Kaling's work, including recently Never Have I Ever, season two is coming out in July, and of course last year's sensation, Indian matchmaking. So these works sort of make up my playground, and I'm interested in updating our accounts of Indian American representation to tie it into this new era to understand really how the second generation wants to be represented what constitutes good representation, etc. So before we dive into all of that, I'm especially interested to talk about Apu and kind of the implications. Do you have any specific examples from your own life where, where you felt your identity shaped by representation or like what inspired you to do this work? Because when I look at my own life, yes, people have used an Indian accent when they've talked to me in kind of a condescending way. And I've had a few of those experiences, but I'd say like more of the shaping of my identity through representation has just been the lack thereof. I didn't see much of myself in representation. I definitely think that I relate to the lack thereof. Another thing that always fascinated me ever since I was little is that every time there was an Indian person or somebody who looked Indian on screen, 
And even if there was someone who was Indian in the grocery store or in the library, my family would always be like, oh, hey, there's an Indian person. You know, there was some really fascinating excitement around seeing another Indian person as a diasporic Indian living in, yeah. in Charlottesville, Virginia. And so that actually really fascinated me. And the more I do my work, the more I think about those moments of seeing my parents or seeing other people get excited to see one Indian person in the corner in a film or a TV show or at a sporting event or something like that. So that I think has been a defining moment for me in terms of representation. I remember something that was interesting is because there was no, there were no Indian American characters on screen, especially in children's content. I used to latch on to those who could pass as Indian. So I don't know if you're familiar with uh, American Girl dolls. There was an American Girl doll, Josefina. And so she is a, a doll from, she's a character. She's an American girl from New Mexico. And so she was the one that looked the most Indian to me. So I got that doll. And um, I remember we had a family friend who would make Indian clothes for her. So she could, like, she had a salvar kameez too. That was kind of exciting. So, um, but we, we never had any characters on screen. Nowadays, I believe there's a show, I think it's Mira the Detective. I'm not entirely sure of the name, but there are chi there's children's content that features uh, Indian American characters. And what's really important to think about is when you think about Apu, Apu was a first generation character. So a lot of times, even in shows like Big Bang Theory, these are first generation characters. But we never had second generation characters because there was not this perception that, that Indians are American in that sense. So now in this sort of what I'm defining as a post-2015 era, you have Aziz, you have Hassan, you have all these second generation characters. Now we are having representation at a very different level. So it provides a lot to work with. So much of what you said is relatable to me. Because one example I always give is that when I was living in Plano, Texas as a kid, and I look back, most of my close friends were brown because there were so many brown people there. It was like half the school was brown. When I moved to Wisconsin, this is where what you're saying about Josefina really resonates. I realized that I had a lot of Chinese friends. And looking back, I kind of realized that in some way, that was probably the closest friend group that I had to like an Indian friend group, right? They could relate to having parental pressure to take the advanced math classes or, you know, certain cultural things like the respect for elders, like they also didn't call adults by their name and certain discomforts and stuff that we could all relate to. So it's super interesting to hear you talk about relating to the closest thing that you could find. Yeah, yeah. And I think that defines sort of a whole generation of Indian Americans. I'm sure the people who are babies right now will have an entirely different experience because they have so much more content to work with. But it's yeah. still not enough. So can we pause for a moment and just talk about the current state of representation? So what you've mentioned is like a huge shift, right? It's not just a portrayal of first-generation immigrants anymore. You're now starting to see, I think like even Miss Marvel had a Pakistani lead. We have celebrities like Padma Lakshmi, Hasan Minaj, who you mentioned, and I adore forever. <laughs> Why do you think we're starting to see that representation? Is it that new opportunities have opened up or is it that people have just been pushing for a long time? What has kind of driven this sort of rise in representation? 
That's actually a really good question. And that's something that I'm starting to explore in my dissertation. So I will have a better answer for you a year from now. But one of the big things that I think is that there is the rise of the digital stars. So streaming online streaming platforms allow for more content to be created. YouTube, for example, take Lily Singh. She is a self-made woman. She had her own show on YouTube and she's just been hustling for, you know, over a decade and she was able to rise to stardom in that way simply through her own efforts and building popularity and things like that. Those mechanisms were obviously not available to people, let's say, in the 90s. And people who wanted to make it in showbiz in the 90s had to get past the gatekeepers of of Hollywood and of television. And that was hard because those were controlled by sort of the dominant class, the dominant, basically sort of by, by white Hollywood. And so, you know, I think a really good example of this is if you see the episode of Master of None in which Aziz tries out for a show on television and Ravi Patel also tries out for that show. And the producer, he likes them both, but he says he can only take one. And Aziz says, why can't there be two Indian people on the show? And the producer says, well, people will think it's an Indian show and we're just not there yet. So those politics, those power dynamics are a little less so in the world of YouTube and the world of digital, digital storytelling. The absence of those politics enables somebody like Lily Singh to be successful and then enter mainstream. That's interesting because it's almost like before you would have, you would get a show and then you would get an audience. But now because of these digital platforms, you're able to get an audience, which then prompts the network to look at you and say, we should give this person a show because they already have an audience that they're bringing. Exactly, exactly. Why don't we step back and talk about Apu, who you had mentioned earlier as an example. I just want to start by getting your general thoughts on Apu. I know you mentioned that he was a first-generation immigrant. Do you think that he was a good example of representation? I mean, at that time period, he was the only example of representation, right? And you have people that say some representation is better than no representation. So I'd just like your general thoughts on the quote-unquote phenomena of Apu. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Apu has been talked about heavily in the literature. So what I say sort of cites the literature. A big thing with the representation of Apu is he is sort of an example of a model minority. I think Hari Kondabolu does a great job of talking about this in his film, The Problem with Apu. He has these qualities uh, that he's devious, that he is goofy. These are the words that he uses in the documentary. He also has a PhD. And he also really, um, he works very hard. We see that he works very hard. So he has that sort of subservient affect to him. So a lot of these are the ways in which the model minority has been characterized. So coming to Apu, whether or not he is good representation, I would argue that he was not. He was the only thing that there was. So in the problem with Apu, Hank, there's a clip in which Hank Azaria talks about how the character came to be. And in the original script, it just said clerk. It did not specify uh, Indian. And I remember Hank Azaria saying that 
you know, we're not going to do an Indian because that's a comedy cliche. But then in the room, the storyboarding room, essentially, he read it in an Indian accent. I believe the line was 35 cents, please. And everybody in the room laughed. And then that ended up sort of making Apu an Indian character. So he's already being shaped by a stereotype, by preconceived notions that the dominant group has of this other group. So when a character is created in that way, I don't think that it can be good representation. So one of the scholars that I follow heavily is the great Stuart Hall. He is a heavy hitter in the field of cultural studies, and he does a lot of work, of course, in in media and representation and diasporic studies and things of that nature. So one of the things that he kind of talks about that I've tied into my own research on race and ethnicity is that the danger of a dominant racial hierarchy, and we are all sort of, the way sociologists have defined, we all fall on a racial hierarchy. So the danger of, of racial hierarchy in America is that when it is translated into media texts, it runs the risk of producing essentialized subjects. So essentialized is another way of saying, uh, of homogenizing or of saying everybody is the same. It's like saying Indian people have a certain essence about them. So-and-so people have a certain essence about them. So we can't say that people have an essence about them because we're heterogeneous. We, We don't have an essence necessarily, but when we sort of fit ourselves into these hierarchies and when those hierarchies get translated, it produces essentialized subjects. So thinking about Apu, Apu is created from a very Eurocentric perspective. What we need to do in order to move out of that is decenter Eurocentric universality, decenter making the white perspective the norm, the default perspective. Because when we do that, we end up with stereotypical portrayals of different groups. We end up with characters like Apu. So that's a big thing that we need to work work out. On the other hand, though, something that minority content creators need to focus on, and this is something that Stuart Hall talks about, is that there is this pressure placed on, he talks about Black artists, but I would say minority artists in general, to fetishize their subordination in order to contest their marginality. So it is useful for people going forward when thinking about what good representation entails to acknowledge the subordination you experience, but also find different ways of representing oneself. That all makes sense. And when I look at Apu, I think he's like a very specific shade of brown. He has a specific accent. And I think anyone South Asian knows that skin tones vary, languages vary, food varies. Like so, There's so much diversity. It is a very heterogeneous population, as you'd mentioned. So I guess one question I have for you then, was the problem with the character and the quality of that representation? Or was it with the quantity of representation that existed at the time meaning like was the problem Apu himself and this was like a bad character to put into the zeitgeist or was it the fact that you know Apu does maybe represent an experience like a first gen experience of a specific type of family from a specific part of India but the issue was that there was no other South Asian or no other Indian characters on screen and so that's where the generalization started happening 
Yeah, I'll sort of reference Hall again when I say that representation in numbers is never enough. We need to have quality representation, even if it's just one. And so the thing with Apu is that he may be representative of a group within the Indian diaspora in America, but for such a long time, being the only Indian American character on screen, he bears a lot of responsibility. So because he's created on the basis of stereotype, he is created on the basis of the images that the dominant group has of this group in their head. And that's the only example that there is on screen. That's sort of what leads people to internalize Indian Americans as a certain way. Yeah. So it sounds like when someone says some representation is better than no representation, this is a pretty good kind of counter argument to that, right? What I'm hearing is kind of seeing the only example, seeing quote unquote some representation, but in a form that was created not by someone from within our own ethnic group or our identity group has negative effects. Correct. Yes. So that is the big shift from the yesteryears to today. The yesteryears characters like Apu were created by non-Indian American or non-Indian content creators. And I don't, as to my knowledge, they did not seem to consult with Indian immigrant or Indian American people in the creation of Apu. So this was entirely created on the basis of the image that they had in their head. So that kind of leads into the next topic that I want to touch on, which is the responsibility of content creators. But before we go there, one more question, just kind of in this space, you've mentioned that now we're starting to see more representation created by South Asian creators, right? You mentioned Master of None and a few other pieces of content. So if we want to continue building on the momentum that's kind of happening right now, what are the best ways, in your opinion, for us to push either from within the industry, because I know, you know, if you have more South Asian actors, that gives you more potential to be on screen, but also from outside of the industry. So one of the things that Indian American or South Asian American content creators try to do, I think, is they try to build solidarity, they try to build a community, they try to build a sense of belonging, because that's something that was missing for so long, right? So one of the things that they need to be cognizant of and think about when with the intention of building solidarity is they need to make sure they're not suppressing heterogeneity. They're not suppressing the variance within the Indian community, within the South Asian community. A lot of times what happens is there is a tendency to present the perspective of the privileged or the dominant caste, class, whatever it is. So you take Indian matchmaking, for instance. Indian matchmaking has been heavily critiqued for classism, casteism, sexism, it presents the dominant class, the dominant caste, the dominant religion, heteronormativity, things like that. And even with the characters who maybe do not fall under the category of upper caste or upper class, they are kind of othered within the show in very subtle ways. So in doing so, we are setting, we are setting the bar for what an Indian American is. And that's something that we need to constantly be on our toes thinking about. How do we not suppress the heterogeneity within our very, very diverse community? 
so that that's super interesting because I think when I watched that show, I just I really enjoyed it, but I was watching it as entertainment, right? I wasn't even thinking about all these things. And so when the critiques came up, it was actually quite interesting for me. But to be honest, I wasn't sure what I agreed with, what I didn't, because I had a couple of questions. And, you know, like one one thing that I'll pose to you is that the creator responded to those critiques saying that she was just following one matchmaker and documenting that process. So I, I suppose my first question is just, do you feel like she had a moral responsibility to capture other voices or with any creator creating any sort of content, do they have kind of an obligation to be doing this kind of work? She does have an obligation because at this point, we still do not have enough representation. So kind of how I was talking about the responsibility that Apu bears, Smriti Mundra also bears a great deal of responsibility because she has the opportunity to create a mainstream show on a mainstream platform like Netflix. So there is responsibility. Also, the show is called Indian Matchmaking. So when a show is called Indian Matchmaking and you're only presenting one perspective, for audiences who are not sort of attuned, so let's say non-Indian audiences, they will take this, they will assume, they could take this and assume this is Indian culture. And if people don't fall under that bucket, then they are not, con it, it's just not inclusive, basically is what I'm trying to say. There was a really great panel discussion in which members of the Equality Labs, the uh, International Dalit Solidarity Network, I believe is what it's called, really awesome panel discussion in which Smriti Mundra talks about how she is making this show for the Indian diaspora. So she's making it for Indian and people in India. So an Indian audience, basically. And so she said that I don't have to explain a lot of the things that we see. I don't have to explain the stuff around fairness. I don't have to explain those kinds of things, which Christina Dhanraj, who is a Dalit activist, she talks about how we are also part of this, part of the Indian diaspora. We are also consuming your show. And she says, by we, I mean people who are dark-skinned, who are Dalit, who are non-Hindu, and all of those things. So that, I think, is a really good example of the responsibility that Indian matchmaking bears as still one of the very few Indian diasporic shows. I think a lot of people were upset by the choice of Seema, right? The person, the matchmaker being followed because she seemed to fall into a lot of the, what you were saying, the colorism, the casteism, the isms, so to speak. So even if the director, the creator of the show had chosen to follow someone specific, maybe this was not the best choice. I, while I understand what the critiques were and where they were coming from in terms of someone saying like, this is maybe making mainstream an experience that shouldn't be made mainstream. It's almost like choosing this person was holding a mirror to reality in some sense. I also would potentially argue that these isms truly exist in Indian culture, and they're kind of being brought to light. When I watch that show, I can see the, the colorism at the very least, even if I didn't pick, pick up on the casteism. So I guess what is your response to that? Like, is it bad to have these things brought to light in that sense? Or, you know, was her choice really a bad choice when what she was maybe doing was reflecting reality? Smriti Mundra does address this exact point that you're making, that she's 
brought these things to light and they have stirred up conversation and things like that. On the other hand, a lot of the activists in the panel bring up the fact that we have already been facing these conversations. So Tenmori Saundarajan has a really, really uh, great quote, which I'm not exactly remembering what it was, but she's saying that that we cannot wait for sort of the learning curve of the upper caste or the privileged people. This is an example of that. These conversations are already going on constantly about, and, you know, people from the Dalit community or other marginalized communities have been raising their voice and they have been talking about these things, but the privileged class is only listening now. And so what they are arguing is that we have to be triggered, we have to face you know, all these memories, we have, to, we, we have to deal with all of this in order to have, as Christina Tanaraj says, a woke conversation. So this is something that tends to happen, I'm sure in other, I know in other marginalized communities, that people are screaming from the rooftops, but only when the upper caste or the privilege or the upper class learns, that's the only time things change, because otherwise they don't listen to those voices. In a, in a way, I wonder, though, isn't that uh, positive for the show? Because like me personally, I know very little about cast. I just I grew up in the States. It wasn't a thing that my parents talked to me about. It wasn't a thing that I chose to read about because it's not like that would be taught in a U.S. history classroom. And I understand what you're saying about the unfortunate dynamic between like privileged people have to be yelling about something for there to be activism around or for there to be action around it. But isn't it a good thing then that the show kind of highlighted some of those issues for a population that might not have otherwise dived into those issues? I think that, yeah, we could argue that it is a good thing in that sense that people are aware of it. At least, I mean, at least people are now aware of it. I think that that hopefully if people are able to turn their awareness into action, then we'll really know if the show is effective or not. Because if people just become aware of it and don't do anything about it, then we're going to continue the same patterns moving forward. So we've kind of talked about the responsibility and whether it exists, but now I just kind of want to look more towards like, how can content creators kind of leverage that responsibility and and do the right thing in terms of creating moral or ethical representation? And so you've kind of listed out some examples thus far. One thing that kind of stuck out to me was the fact that often bad representation comes from creating a character without consulting the group or the traditions that that character is from. Apu was created by a group of white men sitting in a room. Smriti, when she created Indian matchmaking, she titled it with Indian, but she chose to kind of consult her own experience or her own friend as to what the matchmaking process is like, right? So clearly we need to be bringing people in to consult them. The, the question that I'll kind of pose to you is that it's impossible to capture every dimension of a given culture, especially now when you have not just different ethnicities in India. And when you look at the diaspora, it's like not just different ethnicities that they come from, but also the different generations, the first gen, the second gen, you're even having some third gen people now. So as a creator, like when should I start pulling people in? You know, what, what would be a flag that tells me like, I should probably consult someone before I put this character out there or this story out there. I think it would be useful for content creators to get into the habit of during their brainstorming phase, 
coming up with a proposal or something like that. And if they have any doubts or if they're incorporating a character they don't know much about, I think that would be a great time to do some research and consult with somebody of that background. So including people at the very beginning stages, including people during the brainstorm proposal phase, even even before funding. I think that that's something that funders could start looking out for nowadays. Are you being inclusive? Are you thinking about are you thinking about nuance and detail when it comes to the people that you're representing? I think that that would be great if if reviewers could start thinking about things like that. I guess going back to the flag question though, like is there a specific I'm I'm not familiar with this culture. I'm not familiar with this generation. Is there like a flag or something that would tell them like this would be a good topic or a good character to consult someone on? I think the flag would be that if you're creating a character that has a background that you don't necessarily know much about. That could even be a male content creator wanting to tell a story about a female character. Something as simple as that. I think that that is a good time, a good flag to start consulting. One thing that I'll share with you is kind of the fact that I'm a solo content creator. With this podcast, I now have a couple of people that are starting to help me, but especially in the beginning stages, I really struggled because if you look at the Indian diaspora, between India and Pakistan, that makes up 90% of the people. So it was like hard for me to find a Bangladeshi person, hard for me to find a Nepali person. And in the meantime, I'm also like learning to edit and figuring out how to market the podcast. And so at that time, maybe I didn't stress the importance enough of consulting other people and like trying harder to bring on Pakistani people, Nepali people and Bangladeshi people, which I'm starting to do now that I have more of a rhythm. But I suppose what I'm getting at is that you can feel resource constrained, you can feel time constrained. And so it's helpful to know different ways to go about this, right? So outside of consulting with someone, are there other things that we could be doing as content creators to continue to create inclusive content? I think the number one thing is awareness. While I was, I was, I've been writing a paper on Indian matchmaking and exactly what I, what I mentioned, arguing that it sort of only presents a very privileged perspective. And so one of the things I noticed when chatting with people about my paper is just the lack of awareness that many of us have towards the heterogeneity within the Indian community. So a lot of us, like you said, we didn't learn about caste. We didn't learn about those things in school. But that does play a very big part in our lives as diasporic Indians, whether we know it or not. And so increasing our awareness about things like that. And that happens through talking to people. That happens through reading. That happens through having an open mind. Um, Because that information will not be readily available to you. But if you are a content creator, you do want to be aware of these things. So that's something that I would encourage content creators, including myself, to do is to constantly research, to constantly talk to people about their different experiences. Because the more we are aware of how different we are, the more we can accommodate the more we can incorporate stories of people who are different than us and avoid perpetuating the same story the same for example the same model minority story over and over again i love that because i know in my own experience like one of the things i've tried to do is debunk the model minority myth 
with this podcast. But in the beginning, to me, that just meant we're more than just doctors. But I've recently started reading The Karma of Brown Folk, and that has completely changed my perspective on what the implications of the model minority myth are. They go far beyond our own community. And so like the weaponization of Indians or the South Asian stereotype against black stereotypes and that sort of thing. So I think that awareness is huge. Yeah. And think about what Prashad is saying in that book. He's asking, how does it feel to be the solution? So that's sort of his way of illustrating that idea of the model minority being a white racial frame that is used to, like, like you said, and as he says, weaponize. Basically, it's like Asian Americans are sort of a pawn in dividing non-white society. I took a, a class race and ethnicity. And we did a lot of discussion on racial hierarchies in America and sort of the divide and conquer strategy, you could say, in which Asian Americans are placed in the middle and are triangulated against white and black society. And I've done some other reading in which Asian Americans are considered as the honorary whites. These are all ways to create divide and keep white America at the top. So. I want to shift a little bit towards social media. And I know we talked about streaming platforms earlier, but I'm curious, although most of your work has been on TV and film, it sounds like what you feel like the role of social media is in representation and how it might influence TV and uh, and other media moving forward. I think the greatest thing about social media is that it enables us to keep content creators accountable. So if you think about, let's take Indian matchmaking, the kind of discussion that the show stirred on social media, that I think was sort of a way to keep other future content creators accountable. Soon after, maybe a couple months after Indian matchmaking released, there's another Netflix show called The Big Day. And that show, I I don't necessarily think it's 100% inclusive particularly along the lines of class and caste and things like that. But that show did incorporate LGBTQ couples. That show did make an effort to probably listen to the criticism that was surrounding Indian matchmaking and incorporate that into their show. So that is an example, I think, of how social media keeps content creators accountable and ensures that we move towards a better state of inclusivity. From the consumer side, I've noticed that a lot of they see creators that are popular on social media, something like Hamel Patel, Anthony Gomez, Shivani Bafna. It's interesting to me because they wear a lot of South Asian elements proudly. So they'll dress in saris and those types of things that most of the diaspora isn't wearing in the day to day. And so I'm curious if you think that that also has an influence on like the representation that we'll end up seeing in TV and film and all of that. This is a little out of my realm, but I do think that what this signals to is a newfound sort of pride and ownership of South Asian identity and this understanding that I can be American and I can be South Asian at the same time. That's something that I know for sure I did not feel growing up that I feel now. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. So sort of that ability to to wear, I remember as a kid, I would never wear Indian clothes outside of that, like going to the store or something. Um, I would be embarrassed. But now 
you know, I'm not, I don't feel that way. I think that we also have models, like you've mentioned, people who, content creators who are wearing Indian clothes or who are doing certain Indian things. And we have models, we see that we're being validated in that way. I love that. And it makes a lot of sense to me because in a way, seeing these creators, seeing the pride around those things, seeing the ownership around those things, if I then go on to create for TV or for film, I feel less of the need to accommodate, to keep people in Western clothes, those types of things. I think it allows you to create a bit more freely. I have like kind of one last question before I get to where people can follow you. But if you were to classify the issue of ethical representation in media, how much of it do you feel like we've figured out? Meaning, is this a problem that we know the solution to and we just need to put into practice? Or are we still kind of researching the issue? Are there any big questions still left around the concept of what is ethical representation? I think that we are still figuring out the answer to what is good representation, what is ethical representation, how do we break the cycle of stereotyping. I think we're still figuring those answers out. Some of the sort of key points that I think are useful to think of or sort of the intentions that I think are useful to have when creating content is decentering Eurocentric universality, decentering whiteness, white culture as the norm. That speaks to them, that touches on model minority as well. Also, thinking about how we can build solidarity without suppressing heterogeneity, how we can build a community without suppressing our differences, without homogenizing our community, and increasing our awareness of our own community and, and doing a lot of research, looking at who are the different members of our community, who are the different members of people who, who identify as Indian American or a South Asian American, what are their experiences? Recognizing that there are experiences beyond what we have most commonly seen in media and in our own friend groups. I think one of the big takeaways from this conversation for me is how many things influence my own life that I didn't realize because of the fact that I am Indian there are so many cultural things that are at play that I maybe have not even noticed. And it's important to be aware of those as a content creator. So Madhavi, where can people find you online and follow your work? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Madhavi underscore ready. So that's M-A-D-H-A-V-I underscore R-E-D-D-I. You can also check out my website, www.madhavireddy.com. Twitter is where I post a lot of my updates regarding my academic work as well as my artistic work. So uh, follow me there. Great. I will link to those in the show notes and I encourage people to check out your website. It is like the front page is just you in a cozy sweater. and It's like the best thing ever. I think most of the pictures I've seen of you, you're either wearing a blazer or a sweater. <laughs> it's just a good way to live. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for being our first guest on this the South Asian University segment. Thank you so much for having me. I really had a, a great time talking to you. Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guests. If you want to support the show, share this episode with a friend or follow us on Instagram at BPWK podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.